0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. I appreciate you tuning in to Trumpet Hour. I'm Joel Hilliker. America is truly mad about football. Thanksgiving Day last week had the biggest viewership in NFL history, 138 million viewers across three games that day, 12 million more than the record set in 2016. The Dallas Cowboys versus the New York Giants game was the most watched NFL regular season game in history. It broke a record that was 22 years old. Now, at the same time, The World Cup is drawing huge audiences, even in the U.S. Thanksgiving Day match between America and England drew over 15.3 million viewers. It was the most watched men's soccer game ever in the U.S. And even college football on Thanksgiving was huge. 17 million people made Michigan thumping Ohio State the most watched regular season college football game in Fox's history. The largest TV audience for a college game in 11 years. In our first segment today, we're going to put the Thanksgiving sports mania into a larger context. That is the craze for entertainment and what it says about America today. We'll actually look at some troubling historical parallels. For our second segment, we're gonna to go to China, which is experiencing serious protests over renewed COVID restrictions. If you want a picture of what life in a tyranny is like, look at China. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques about why the people in China are at their breaking point and what lessons we can take from the government's iron-fisted response In our third segment, we'll talk about something very different, that is your gut. Nearly 40% of American adults have gastrointestinal problems, bloating, acid reflux, constipation, irritable bowel syndrome, 40%. What causes these digestive disorders and what can we do about them? We'll talk to holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian to get some answers. And our last word today is an inspiring look at what the Bible says about One of the most important questions there is, what is God like? What is his nature and character? There's a lot of confusion about this point, particularly trying to reconcile the view of a loving God with the suffering in this world. But the Bible has our answer. A couple years ago, America's interest in professional football was tanking the explosion of woke messaging, players kneeling during the national anthem, BLM, all this turned off a lot of fans. At the Super Bowl in 2021, the league decided to play what's called the Black National Anthem, lift every voice and sing before the game, and in every game of the season last year. Now, combined with COVID restrictions that prevented fans from attending games, interest in professional football just tanked. But... That is not the case any longer. Football is back big time. I gave you the stats about how it's smashing records, Uh, spectators, viewership. The day of Thanksgiving really has turned into football and sports paradise. It's meant to be a day of giving thanks to God. Uh, But it really has been overwhelmed by sports. And this is part of a much broader trend in America today that is simply crazy for entertainment. A big part of the reason COVID lockdowns caused our television viewing, our entertainment consumption to go through the roof. Let me give you some statistics. The time that people spend with the TV on between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. increased by 77%. People aged 65 and up spend about a third of their waking day, almost six hours, watching broadcast TV. Now, younger people don't watch traditional TV channels. They want streaming services, and they gobble those up. The average kid consumes five hours of media per day. That's an increase of 7% from just a few years ago. Last year, America's entertainment market totaled a record 36.8 billion Dollars, 14% above the previous year. Globally, last year, the home, mobile, and theatrical market totaled $99.7 billion, 24% up from the previous year. Now, you look inside these numbers, there's a, a couple of trends that stand out. One of them is the rise of video games. More than half of America's population plays video games every month. Last year, consumers spent $44 billion in gaming software and services. Mobile game app sales are shooting up by double-digit percentages. Now $37 billion on Android, $52 billion on iOS. GameGavel, this is an online gaming marketplace, they say video games are replacing people's social life. They write, games are becoming the leading platform for communication and social interaction among young audiences. And this trend was accelerated by COVID 19. They say all gaming platforms noted record levels of daily activity among players due to quarantine and a large amount of free time that one had to spend at home. So video game use exploded. A, a related trend here is the rise of esports. This is. Video game competitions, spectators watching other people play video games. Insider Intelligence estimates 29.6 million monthly esports viewers in the US this year. That's up 11% from last year. Statista says by 2025, there are expected to be over 318 million esports enthusiasts worldwide big big jump from 215.2 million in 2020 it's a lot of people watching other people play video games and when i think about all of these statistics and the picture that they paint what i find particularly jarring about this is right now at this time america is facing serious problems nation-threatening problems. You have a leftist government that is trashing our Constitution, throwing out the Bill of Rights, jailing dissenters, imposing censorship, stealing elections, permitting unchecked illegal immigration. They're sinking the country into debt. They're sending inflation soaring. They're sabotaging energy production. They're destroying our public education. They're trashing history. They are changing... The nature of our republic. I, I saw an article a few days ago in the Epoch Times about a protest in Phoenix, Arizona. These people come together to demand a new midterm election for Maricopa County. This is after serious irregularities and problems. This determines who governs the state. The woman who's been declared the winner, she's the Secretary of State here. She rules on whether there were election problems. She decides whether they do anything about this. There's a lot to be concerned about here. And the evidence is that tens of thousands of people's votes were not handled properly. Maybe hundreds of thousands. The people organizing this protest in Phoenix, they were hoping for a huge turnout of Arizonans demanding that these issues be addressed. Well, guess what? About 150 people showed up. 150 people to protest and to demand that something be done about all of these irregularities and these very concerning facts and the evidence that shows that something was not right. 150 people. The people in power are getting away with these things because nobody is holding them to account. People just can't be bothered. How can you turn something like this around if people don't care? I mean, the, the people who are in power, they can do whatever they want because nobody, nobody cares what's going on here. It's, it's hard not to put these, these two things together. And this reminded me of a booklet that was produced by the Worldwide Church of God under Herbert W. Armstrong in the mid-'70s called The Modern Romans. This booklet is about how this powerful empire that ruled the world ended up collapsing. And this is important history because there was a time when Rome was so powerful that people assumed it was invincible. Now, obviously, that assumption was woefully false. Rome fell, it fell hard. But let me just read from this booklet. It says proud Romans became lulled by the belief in the seeming eternity and superiority of their system in their long chain of rarely broken military and economic successes, as if fate had determined they should always come out on top despite repeated challenges to their existence. Now that Sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? It's the way that we naturally think. It's, it's difficult to truly recognize the vulnerability of a society that, that is doing so well, where there's so much prosperity, there's so many things that seem to be going well for us, or we have such a, a long record of success. But as this booklet says, the unthinkable happened. When Seneca, the Roman statesman, warned that Rome would fall, the people snickered. Rome fall? It could lose a few battles, but not the empire. Rome, mused the average citizen basking in the height of world power, is impregnable. Rome was the world, and the world was Rome. To speculate at the moment of unsurpassed material, economic, and military achievements that glorious Rome could collapse to inferior barbarians was unthinkable. What Roman Jeremiah could have prophesied that the ravages of wars, taxation, mounting crime, race problems, moral decay, subversion from within, political assassinations, and public apathy, not to exclude natural disasters, would one day bring Rome prostrate before less developed nations. But the voices of the ancient Roman scoffers are as still as the rubble of ancient Rome. Now there's a chapter in this booklet titled, A Mad Craze for Pleasure. And this talks about how the prosperity of Rome caused So many people to turn to luxury and ease and escapism, self-indulgent, and all of these things that fed into the rampant spread of immorality and perversion and violence. Now, these descriptions of what happened to Roman society anciently have an eerie ring of familiarity today. Let me just read some quotes To you from this booklet, only those with an eye on the lessons of history understand the subtle dangers of careless, excessive self-indulgence, self-seeking and hedonism. While the nation faces the greatest problems in its history, demanding the greatest effort and sacrifice. However, millions would rather play, escape and indulge themselves in temporary selfish goals. This booklet quotes Edward Gibbons' The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, saying this, From the morning to the evening, careless of the sun or of the rain, the spectators, who sometimes amounted to the number of 400,000, the giant Circus Maximus in Rome, seated this many, remained in eager attention, their eyes fixed on the horses and charioteers, their minds agitated with hope and fear for the success of the colors which they espoused, and the happiness of Rome appeared to hang on the event of a race. That's Gibbon talking about ancient Rome, but it's it's exactly what's happening in America today. This kind of fixation on entertainments that mean nothing in the big picture there's a a big section in Rodney Stark's book How the West Won talking about Rome and uh, specifically about the sports and entertainment in the Roman Empire and it's 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 quite shocking Uh, He talks about the chariot races. Now, those were obviously dangerous, but a lot of Roman entertainment involved people deliberately being killed. Many public entertainments, he said... Involved wild animals killing men and women who'd been sentenced to death for various offenses, including for being Christians. Besides being fed to wild animals, people were executed in the arenas in a variety of sadistic ways flogging, burning, skinning, impaling, dismemberment, even crucifixion. So just think about this people attending these public entertainments that just involve death and violence. It's, it's really a mark of sickness to be entertained by such things. There's a section in this book about the gladiators. Most of them were slaves. Most of them were uh, taken as prisoners of war and made slaves. It says probably most gladiators died in their first match since well-known veteran gladiators often were pitted against novices. In AD 108 and 109, Emperor Trajan employed 10,000 gladiators and 11,000 wild animals in an entertainment lasting 123 days. Such entertainments continued until banned by Christian emperors in the 4th century. Now you had the the Colosseum in Rome, that seated 50,000 people, but there were 251 amphitheaters across the Roman Empire and many of them seated 20,000 people or more. The smallest could seat 7,000 people. So, Rodney Stark writes, It is credibly estimated that at least 200,000 people died in the Colosseum. It seems quite conservative to estimate that an average of at least 10,000 would have died in each of the other 251 amphitheatres, or another 2.5 million. All of this for amusement. That, that's very sick. It just shows how involved, how much influence Satan had over that society. But but look at our, our society today. There's a lot of that type of content in entertainment today. And in most cases, they're not killing actual people. But uh, the the vividness is even greater than it would have been from sitting in a a seat in a Coliseum looking down onto the, the middle of the Coliseum. We get it in close up, full color detail, HD. I can't even stomach a two-minute trailer for a lot of the movies that are being produced today. But people are marinating in this for hours upon hours. It's not just an occasional visit to the Coliseum. This is available 24-7 through streaming services. Violence is a staple of our entertainment today. And a lot of it just very, very sick and satanic violence. And on top of that, there's... A lot of sexuality, a lot of immorality, a lot of perversion. This is also from that Modern Romans booklet. It, it quotes Philip Ness Van Meyers' Rome, its rise and fall. Almost from the beginning, the Roman stage was gross and immoral. It was one of the main agencies to which must be attributed the undermining of the originally sound moral life of Roman society. So absorbed did the people become in the indecent representations of the stage that they lost all thought and care of the affairs of real life. It's, it's, it's a remarkable description. What kind of uh, transformation can happen in society as we fixate on immoral entertainment and just how this begins to just change the way that we think? You know, if, if we could get just a fraction of the people off of these kinds of entertainments on these streaming services and get them to devote their attention to making sure that we have secure elections, the course of the nation would change. You look at the bigger picture, you see all of these Threats that are building around the world. You see Russia warring with Ukraine and Putin trying to freeze people to death. You see China chewing up territory. You see Xi Jinping becoming dictator for life and preparing to take over Taiwan. Efforts to expand global trade that locks America out. You see initiatives that could upend the global economy. Iran about to build a nuclear weapon and openly flaunting international efforts to stop them. North Korea launching cruise missiles. None of this is, is really hitting Americans' radar. Netflix, 213 million subscribers. Disney Plus, 118 million. Paramount Plus, HBO Max, Hulu. 45 million subscribers. Peacock, 54 million. Amazon Prime, 175 million subscribers. Over a quarter of Americans watch movies several times a week. Nearly one in five adults watches movies every day, including a quarter of people aged 18 to 29. We can't get enough of it. And how long... Can America retain its position of power in the world as these threats are growing all around us when our priorities are so misguided and self-indulgent? The Modern Romans quotes William Stearns Davis' book The Influence of Wealth in Imperial Rome. He says, The Pax Romana brought many blessings, it made possible the greatest luxury, the most active commercial life the world ever saw. Though a few savage tribes might ravage the frontiers, the quiet interior provinces were destined to perpetual peace and prosperity, so the Roman citizens thought. And so, in this dream of the absolute fixity of the Roman system, men went on getting, studying, enjoying, dissipating, Doing everything except to prepare for fighting until Alaric sacked the eternal city. Talking about the, the sack of Rome in 410 AD by the Visigoths under King Alaric. There are enemies of America on the world scene today that are preparing for their opportunity to do the same to America. And we're too distracted to recognize it. Now, this booklet, the modern Romans, makes an important point. It's not that there's anything inherently wrong with entertainment when it's used properly, but it says, But when an entire nation seems to have nothing but the pursuit of money, gadgetry, pleasure, escape, and thrills as its national goals, that nation is in serious trouble. Today, millions have no higher ideal or purpose than to get out and indulge themselves in a particular personal pleasure. So wrapped up and involved are millions in these short-range pleasures that few are willing to endure any discomfort or privation to solve national problems or threats. That's, That's the real issue. Where are our priorities? This booklet says, why has such crass materialism and pleasure become the overriding concern of millions because the nation has lost a sense of national purpose or higher ideals other than personal selfish ones this booklet was first published 50 years ago and all these trends about sports and entertainment they're far more advanced today it brings to mind the apostle paul prophesying in 2 Timothy 3 this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come it says for men shall be lovers of their own selves covetous boasters proud blasphemers he lists several other characteristics that would mark these last days people love themselves more than family more than community more than nation They are without self-control, Paul prophesied, and it says that they are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. What an apt description of our people today. That is fulfilled prophecy in America. We are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, more than lovers of freedom, lovers of justice, lovers of anything honorable. We love pleasure, Practically above all, we are among the modern descendants of ancient Israel. God loves Israel, and he's used Israel through history in a special way. He wants us to eventually benefit all nations, but we have turned from that purpose. We've turned on God. We're rapidly accelerating toward the fulfillment of our prophesied collapse, following the same course toward our own destruction that Rome and so many other great powers have followed throughout history. God laments in Hosea thirteen, and verse nine: "O Israel, you have destroyed yourself. We're doing this to ourselves, and we need to realize what God implored our ancestors to realize." That verse continues: "But in me is your help. I will be your king. Where is there any other that may save you in all your cities?" Surely we should be able to recognize that no one but God can save us. And God is reaching out. He would help us. He would solve our problems. He would be our king, he says, if only we would repent and embrace his law and submit to his rule. God loves America, and he wants to prevent our destruction if he can. But he'll only do so if we allow him to. is the voice of the trumpet news magazine you're listening to trumpet hour if you want a sobering look at just how oppressive life can get under authoritarian rule look right now at what is happening in china we'll get a peek in this report from jeremiah jacques
1: The Chinese Communist Party is now facing the worst protests against it since the Tiananmen Square massacre back in 1989. The anger is largely over the Chinese government's COVID-19 rules. Since the early days of the COVID pandemic, China's ruler, Xi Jinping, has taken a remarkably strict stance against the virus. His policy is called Zero COVID. And it aims to isolate every single infected individual and keep them quarantined, by force if necessary, from the rest of the population. This has resulted in rigid lockdowns of entire cities, hundreds of millions of people, some of them for as long as four months. This is leaving many people without access to food and medicine, unable to earn money, and deeply discouraged. Sometimes, just days after an extended lockdown on a certain district finally comes to an end, someone else will test positive, and the government will suddenly, with no notice, mandate a whole new lockdown. The policy is driving many past the point of what they can bear. For the last several months, there have been scattered protests against the specific policies in certain cities and districts, but these have remained mostly isolated, and generally against the way local authorities have implemented lockdown measures. But last week, a fire erupted in a residential high-rise in the city of Arumki in Xinjiang province. Ten people were killed and nine were injured in this tragedy, and footage of them screaming as they burned circulated through Chinese social media. Why were the people unable to get out of the building? Why were firefighters unable to get to the blaze in time to help them? Many Chinese people said that the answer to both was COVID restrictions. It is well known that authorities sometimes lock COVID-contaminated buildings from the outside, occasionally even welding doors shut. And even if that wasn't the case in this particular building... COVID barriers outside the building are known to have kept firefighters from getting close enough to douse the flames. Some of the viral footage showed fire trucks aiming streams of water at the burning building, but from too far a distance to be able to hit the flames. The jets of water fell short, raining down onto the street while the people inside died an excruciating death. And hundreds of millions of Chinese saw it. And many said that the cause of this nightmare was the government's insane zero-COVID policy. So on November 26th, street protests erupted in Shanghai, China's largest city and a major financial hub. By the next day, demonstrations were happening also in Beijing, China's capital, as well as Nanjing, Hong Kong, Guangzhou, Aramki, and several other cities. In many cases, the protesters went beyond just speaking out against lockdown measures. And some even began calling for the Communist Party and even Xi Jinping himself to be replaced. Many of them were actually chanting for a democratic government. When Chinese citizens saw footage of the World Cup... With tens of thousands of people packed into stadiums, you know, maskless and unconcerned about any sort of social distancing, it only intensified their anger. They wondered, why has the rest of the world moved on from COVID and we're still acting like it's the apocalypse? So, of course, World Cup footage only made them angrier at their repressive government and the protests in some cities, including Beijing and Shanghai turned violent, with demonstrators tearing down quarantine barriers, overturning police cars, and openly clashing with law enforcement officers. Given the number of cameras in Chinese cities, these unblinking eyes that see every crime and are linked with facial recognition software, and given the notoriously brutal criminal justice system, these protesters likely knew that they were putting their very lives on the line with these kinds of stark anti-government calls and actions. But they went ahead with them anyway, because they are broken. These protesters, many of them are exasperated beyond words. Many feel that life under the CCP's ruthless dictatorship is not worth living, so they risked it all. And many of the hundreds who are being arrested very well may never be seen again. So it's clear that many Chinese have reached a breaking point, and it's clear that the zero-COVID policy has been a disaster, both economically, since it disrupts supply chains, keeps people from working and shutters many factories and shipping hubs, and it has been a disaster politically because it has made many Chinese who were previously supportive of the Communist Party suddenly stand up against it, sometimes even violently. So if zero COVID has been such a disaster, why do Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party continue it? Why do they keep this soul-crushing policy in place even as it turns their people against them? Well, since the early days of the pandemic, Xi has tried to score political points both at home and among people in his partner nations by contrasting China's quote unquote COVID success with America's failure. He is a dictator, and one of his broader goals is to show his people and the world that dictatorship as a form of government is superior to democracy. And he's really made COVID exhibit A in this effort. Xi Jinping directs China's state-run TV to emphasize over and over that over a million Americans have died due to COVID, which makes it the deadliest pandemic in U.S. history, and to contrast that with China, which claims to have lost only 5,000 people due to COVID. Xi Jinping has called this proof of the efficacy of his zero-COVID policy and in broader terms, of the legitimacy of his rule, and of authoritarianism in general. So Xi has really committed to this policy. His name is all over it, and it would be very difficult politically for him to reverse course on it now, after mercilessly inflicting it on his people for the last two and a half years. To reverse course now would feel like an admission of wrongdoing, and dictators such as Xi Jinping seldom make such admissions. She still clings to the hope that he can use this to try to showcase the benefits of authoritarianism over the free societies in the West, and of course he also embraces it as a chance to both justify and increase his control over the Chinese populace. As mentioned at the start of this segment, the current protests are the worst that the Chinese Communist Party has faced since the Tiananmen Square Massacre back in 1989. That is true, but this current round is still a far cry from the demonstrations that led to that tragic massacre 33 years ago. At that time, protesters were out in the streets night after night for two solid months in every major city of China. So those protests back in 89 were far more powerful and threatening to the Communist Party. And even then, the party had no trouble stamping them out once it decided to use military power to do so. At that time, the Chinese government killed at least 10,000 of their own people with some of the most brutal violence on record. So all of this is just to say that the current protests in China do show that some of the nation's people have reached a breaking point. Their simmering rage has reached a boil. But it looks like this is still just a fraction of a percent of China's overall population and not of a nature that poses a serious threat to the CCP's grip on power. That's not to say that the momentum of these protests won't grow – it's hard to say what will happen – but it would have to grow a great deal to reach a level that really threatens to topple the regime. Still though, this could work in a way that loosens Xi Jinping's grip on the people of China. It could weaken him and weaken the CCP without deposing the regime. And the zero-COVID policy could continue also to weaken the Chinese economy and to slow China's growth and reduce its power on the international stage. And Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has said that we should expect events to transpire in a way that reduces China's power and Xi's power relative to that of Russia and Vladimir Putin. The partnership that Xi's China has built with Putin's Russia stands out as one of this century's most significant Geopolitical developments. And several other smaller Asian nations are increasingly in the orbit of that Russia China axis. And because of China's colossal economic power and its political and military power, most onlookers see China as the lead player in that axis. And they see Russia as the junior partner. And that view has only become more prevalent since Russia's war in Ukraine has faltered so badly this year. And the war has isolated and weakened Russia and tarnished Putin's reputation a great deal. So people increasingly see Russia as the junior partner in the tandem. But Mr. Flurry has maintained that despite all of that, Russia, with Putin at the helm, will soon come to dominate the Russia-China axis. And that is because of Bible prophecy. For years, Mr. Flurry has pointed to passages in the book of Revelation to show that the Russia-China axis was foretold. Chapter 16 calls this axis the kings of the east. And chapter 9 says it'll have a force of 200 million soldiers. And Mr. Flurry has repeatedly pointed to Ezekiel 38 and 39, which talk about a prince of Rosh, as evidence that Putin not she, will be in charge of this in time Kings of the East bloc. In his booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, Mr. Flurry writes, We need to watch Vladimir Putin closely. He is the Prince of Rosh, whom God inspired Ezekiel to write about 2,500 years ago. When you study these scriptures alongside current events revealing modern Moscow's imperialist direction, you see that Putin is the Prince of Rosh. End quote. So the trumpet has been expecting events to play out in a way that will reduce Xi's power relative to Putin's, and reduce China's power relative to Russia's. And so right now, With China's economy taking a serious hit, and with social unrest becoming more and more common because of Xi's lockdown policies, you can see how these trends could eventually rebalance the power in the Russia-China axis in the way that we've been expecting. In the meantime, the leadership in both China and Russia are causing a great deal of suffering, and they will continue to bring the world nearer to what the scriptures call the times of the Gentiles. This will be a time when dictators rule ruthlessly and when the kind of suffering now taking place in china will be the norm worldwide so it is a dark future but there's also great hope tied into current trends mr Fleury's booklet concludes by stressing that the fact that putin is now on the scene and that circumstances are unfolding that will position russia and not china as the head of this kings of the east Bloc. That means that the end of man's chaotic rebellion is near. He writes, A great transition is about to occur. What we are seeing in Russia ultimately leads to the transition from man ruling man to God ruling man. And it's almost here. It's just a few short years away. We have to realize that this is all good news.
0: This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. Do you suffer from a digestive disorder? Experts find that nearly 40% of American adults have gastrointestinal problems. Everything from bloating to acid reflux to constipation to irritable bowel syndrome. It's a huge problem, even a big strain on national health care. But the importance of how toxins affect our overall health is just now becoming clear. To talk about this, we have via Skype from his office in British Columbia, holistic nutritionist and personal trainer Jorg Mardian. Hello. Hello. So uh how does the gut get sick?
2: Well, researchers believe that the biggest key to overall health lies in what's called your microbiome or the The bacterial makeup of your gut so if your gut's not healthy you're not going to be healthy and I think that's a fact that most people do not understand today and it's just a sobering thought because our digestive tract is responsible for most of our overall physical and mental health so I you might assume that your gut primarily affects your digestion That's what we think of, right? The food goes in and then it gets processed. But while it does play a a big part in the ability to break down and absorb the nutrients we take in from food, it also determines what nutrients are absorbed from the food, um, what toxins and allergens and microbes are kept out Mm. that are bad for us. It determines how healthy the immune system is. Um, The response to inflammation to to appetite and even our mood sleep and energy it's it does a big job and scientists also say that we have roughly around 39 trillion microbial cells that inhabit that gastrointestinal tract
0: mm.
2: you know um, it, it's just a rough calculation mathematical calculation um, but that makes up eighty percent of our immune system. Wow, you know so when we look at that, that's an important factor that we have to take care of. It's a, It's just a sobering responsibility. It's an ecosystem that has to remain uh, in balance with less of the wrong bacteria and like parasites and yeasts and more of the good bacteria, hmm. like you would find in yogurts and and and, and good dairies, right? And, and that fact is absolutely essential to good health because it's connected to everything that happens in the body. You know, when we expose it to unhealthy foods, to chemicals, um, there's a lot of genetically altered materials and stuff today, pollutants, what else, pesticides, pharmaceuticals. How, how many people are on pharmaceuticals?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that upsets that Uh, commensal relationship that our gut bacteria has with us we we have a relationship with that bacteria and it's 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 really beneficial if we allow it to be however if we do the wrong things you know the pathogenic bacteria overpopulate the gut and then they're going to invade the intestinal walls and that's going to lead to leaky gut and that contributes to just a host of digestive diseases you know in large part, the, the medical f- professionals just do not understand the relationship between, let's say, eczema or psoriasis or arthritis or bacterial imbalances. They don't put that emphasis on the gut. You know, I mean, there's a scientist, he said, uh, James Kinross, he said, pick a disease and microbiome abuse is associated with it.
0: Wow. <laughs> Yeah, you don't hear about it. I mean, we're we're treating uh, just everything that you're saying. We're treating things that are two or three steps probably upstream from this more fundamental cause of a lot of
2: those problems. Right. We're hitting. We're not hitting the causes. You know, the medical solution is to hit the effect with over-the-counter or prescribed medicines. Mm-hmm. It's huge. You know that. is is what's called a Band-Aid approach, and it's broken. It's just absolutely broken, and we know that because healthcare costs keep going up. I mean, you can talk to anyone, and they have gas and bloating, they have constipation, diarrhea. I mean, how many people don't suffer from it? You you have to look at it in reverse. And then you get worse results like autoimmune disorders. Mm -hmm. These are all related to it as well, like Hashimoto's. Arthritis, type one diabetes is a gut disease. It's a sugar disease. It runs through the gut. Uh, MS, you know, by favoring that medical approach over prevention, you know, the burden of that digestive of digestive diseases on healthcare is roughly, I think, one hundred and forty two billion annually. Wow. You know, so my question is: Is it working? Is the medicinal approach working? I'd say not. And, and I just want to put that into perspective. I, I just had a little fun with this, you know. Uh, since um, 2020, we just got over this COVID issue, right? Uh, I think they said there's a million one deaths attributed to COVID and a lot of hysteria. I mean, so if we extrapolate these digestive deaths over the same time period, we end up with about 650,000. Mm-hmm. Not quite the same number, right? But look at it like this. COVID deaths have dropped significantly in the last two years. But these annual digestive diseases, they're expected to keep climbing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And are we going to have the same numbers down the road? I believe we will. You know, And we will have the, the same type of um, concern over those numbers that we had over COVID. You know that that's a good question to ask because this this really is is a significant issue yeah well, it makes sense
0: that uh, the repository within our system that gathers all, everything that we consume that is meant to supply all of our energy and all of that, that it would have to be in good working condition to make sure that all of those nutrients are distributed properly, that they're assimilated the way that they need to be within our bodies. You mentioned uh, when you first started talking that this doesn't affect only our physical health, but even our mental health. Maybe you can just talk about how gut health affects our thinking.
2: Yeah, great. Um, you know, if, if we look at the overall burden on health care, you know, perhaps this is even going to go higher if we look at it as a mental health issue. <laughs> mm-hmm. So our gut has what's called a second brain. Um, that's really the enteric nervous system. And it, it's made up of two thin layers of more than 100 million nerve cells within the gut uh, from the esophagus down to the rectum. So it, it basically communicates back and forth with our big brain, but with some profound results. You know, for decades, uh, researchers used to think that anxiety and, a dep- and depression trigger uh, big emotional shifts. But now it's the reverse. They believe that the irritation in the, in the gastrointestinal system actually sends signals up the nervous system. And that triggered these mood changes see and with up to 30 to 40 percent of the population having bowel problems at some point this may explain why there's a higher than normal percentage of people with that have irritable bowel and functional bowel problems that have depression and anxiety you know but let's tie it into let's tie this issue into um, men, into mental issues in the increase in the US mental issues it's, it's skyrocketing as well Perhaps, you know, we can see a correlation there. Uh, Hopkins Medicine said that an estimated 26% of Americans suffer from a diagnosable mental disorder. That's 26%, you know, in a given year, and, and some from multiple disorders. So in particular, uh, depressive illnesses occur with substance abuse, but also from toxins from unhealthy foods and chemicals, as we stated much of what we uh, ingest and touch. So we basically live in a poison world, right? And most people, they don't attribute signals like um, brain fog or headaches or poor concentration, uh, fatigue and bad moods to their digestive system. These are just the beginnings of problems, right? But if you ignore those what I call smaller problems, they lead to greater health issues like anxiety and depressive disorders, schizophrenia, autism. And I'm not grandstanding here. This is coming from studies. Hmm. You know? And um, there's nothing that says uh, positively that there is a correlation. But can we look at it and say there could be? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, Let's get to solutions. First of all, what are the main problems? You were talking about just trying to make sure that the the, the composition of the, the good bacteria, that we limit the bad bacteria, we try to imp- increase the number of good bacteria. Uh, what are the things that, I guess, cause the biggest problems with gut health? And then maybe we can talk about how to fix those issues.
2: Right. So, in, in essence, when, when, when you look at this issue, the experts say they're stumped. They, they don't have really, a, you know, they say we don't really understand why all of these digestive problems occur. But there are studies pointing the way. Uh, a big one is microplastics. You know, that's an emerging concern. In 2016, there were 335 million metric tons of plastics produced. And 60% of that went Where? to the food and beverage industry. Now, there is a huge concern about the release of microplastics from food packaging. Everything we package is in plastics. These c- can lead to, as we know, uh, in the inflammatory process, they can penetrate deep into tissues and even cross the blood-brain barrier. So none of this is good. They just don't know how this yet affects us or how many ways, but they know it's bad. Uh, a lot of people turn to this humongous issue of CBD, these CBD products for gut health. Mm. You know? So, in larger part, if you take too much of this stuff, of course, it's going to significantly affect that gut bacteria and can cause leaky gut syndrome. <laughs> CBD will contribute to that. It, it will. Mm. That's what the studies tell us. Now, you're going to add in agricultural chemicals, the pollutants, pesticides, the Uh, Antibiotics, and and people, one thing about antibiotics, people don't realize how many foods have antibiotics in them, residues. Mm -hmm. That destroys it. And, And of course, most medications are very hostile to gut bacteria. And there's a cumulative effect on gut health, and it's just one of constant deterioration today. But I would say the biggest destructive factor is the standard American diet. Um, It's just full of junk food refined carbohydrates the sugars um, Toxic seed oils and unhealthy chemicals, you know, they lack what's important for gut health, you know um, There's important factors that we're looking at that create the conditions Or or that prevent the conditions like undetected gluten intolerance, which many people suffer from celiac uh, food allergies and just all of these diseases we see so ripe in, in, in many people today.
0: So uh, if you want to fix this, maybe uh, some of the uh, the problems that we've been talking about, people are like, yep, yep, uh, check, check, and check. Uh, what would you suggest they do to try to turn things around?
2: Right, yeah, you have to have a solution, don't you? So, you know, with so many issues, uh, you have to address the cause and healing the guts going to take some time I'll just put that out out front it's gonna take some dedication and consistency and like anything eating healthy and managing your stress it will bring you on the way to recovering optimal gut health so you can start with fiber-rich vegetables and fruits and studies show we don't get enough of those it's it's scary how how low we are in vegetables and fruits lean proteins and healthy fats, of course, and they all promote that uh, good gut bacteria. Um, On top of that, what a lot of people don't realize is fermented foods, you know, such as kefir and and yogurt and pickled vegetables, um, miso, sauerkraut, the stuff that's done the traditional ways. Um, Those all help. And there's foods that have what's called prebiotics. They're like food for your bacteria, and these are like in garlic or onions um leeks asparagus uh seaweed and so on and so we need more of those foods that we might not have in our everyday diet you know so that's a basic way through diet to 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 feed our gut and and then we have to leave off what, what I call the, the junk foods and the sugars and all of that. I mean, that's key. You can't actually eat good and then still have junk food in there, a preponderance of that. You have to have 70 to 80% good food at least to give it a chance to, to, to recover. You know, our, our body was designed to thrive under the right conditions. And that 70 to 80% of good food will give it that. It's just going to give us our energetic, happy lives. If we go the other route, uh, we're not going to enjoy that quality of life that's within our reach. You know I would say digestive ailments aren't actually a disease. they're They're just a normal biological response to what we do. so the the, the only proven way to re, then to reduce the gut issues for good and to pr- improve your health is to recognize that there's something wrong, with our approach, our diet, our lifestyle, and to make a healthful change. And if we do that, if we take charge of that aspect, then we're going to reap uh, good gut health in the long run.
0: All right. Excellent. We appreciate that very much. We've been talking with personal trainer and holistic nutritionist Jorg Martian about gut health, what to avoid, and what to put in to make sure that it's it's providing your body the nutrients that they need and uh, even some of the symptoms that uh, that might point back to poor gut health he has written an article about this you can watch for that up at com. we always appreciate your insights sir thank you very much
2: thanks for having me
0: It's time for today's Last Word. Many people have differing, conflicting ideas about God, His nature and character. This is because too many form their own opinions about God rather than look to the inspired Word of God to learn what He reveals about Himself. What is God's nature and character? The most direct answer from Scripture is that God is love. 1 John 4 and verse 8. This single word, love, is filled with meaning, expanded on throughout the Bible. Love is an outflowing, loving concern. It's the way of giving, serving, helping, and sharing, not the get way. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that God's love is patient and kind. It's never selfish, never rude, never irritated, never resentful. It believes the best and is always hopeful. The Bible shows that the character of both God the Father and Christ the Son is is that of spiritual holiness, righteousness, and perfection. God's inherent nature is the way of peace, justice, mercy, happiness, and joy radiating outward toward those He has created. Many people believe these things about God, but there are other aspects of God revealed in the Bible that help to complete the picture and that must not be ignored. Consider the name of God, In Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, God reveals that he is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. He describes himself as keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is a magnificent quality of God. He's merciful and forgiving. But think about what this signifies. God's way of life produces peace, cooperation, happiness and accomplishment. This way of life became a law. The Apostle John wrote, 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. God's character, his love, is revealed in his law, most prominently in the Ten Commandments. Jesus Christ summarized these as wholehearted love for God and love for neighbor equal to self-love. In Matthew 22, God gave us his law to make man happy. It's the only philosophy of life that can make us happy. And breaking that law is sin, it says in 1 John 3 and verse 4. Now, the Bible is clear that as merciful as God is, he doesn't extend his mercy unconditionally. You continue reading his name in Exodus 34 and verse 7. It says that God will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. This statement reveals a God that many people are unwilling to accept or to come to know. But it must not be cast aside. It's backed up and fleshed out by many other passages in both the Old and New Testament. The Bible says that God is a God of judgment, admonition, and correction all of which he does in love. It's wonderfully positive and constructive. But the fact is the presence of law requires a penalty for infraction. There can be no law without a consequence for breaking it. Since God's law reveals the perfect way of life, breaking that law causes problems. In fact, every particle of human suffering, unhappiness, misery, and death has come solely from the transgression of God's law. Some people question if God is truly a loving God. They ask how he could allow suffering and injustice in the world. We have to understand that suffering comes from mankind choosing to rebel against God and to reject his law, a rebellion that began in the Garden of Eden and has continued for generations since. You can learn about this truth in The Mystery of Civilization. That's chapter 4 of Herbert W. Armstrong's book, Mystery of the Ages. God is deeply grieved by human suffering and by sin. And aside from the natural penalties that follow sin, God has determined that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6 and verse 23. The merciful God will not give the gift of eternal life to any human being who would live in sin and misery the way that the immortal devil and his demons will. God will by no means clear the guilty, And the sins of fathers and their miserable effects tend to afflict their children and later generations, as the sin of Adam and Eve can attest. God demands repentance from sin, a total change from a sinful life. And he yearns to see every human being make that choice. As it says in 2 Peter 3 and verse nine, he is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God will not compromise with his law one iota. The death penalty for sin must be paid, but as proof positive of his unparalleled love for mankind and his absolute goodness and righteousness, as it says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God the Father offered his Son, and Jesus Christ sacrificed himself to pay the penalty for our sins upon our repentance. When you understand it, there's no greater demonstration of God's love and of who and what God truly is than that sacrifice and the life it opens to us. God is love. He has a marvelous plan to bring his loving way of life and eternal life to all mankind, including all those who have ever lived. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to lettersatthetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Jeremiah Jacques and Jorg Mardian. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Michelangelo. The greatest danger for most of us is not that our aim is too high and we miss it, but that it is too low and we reach it. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.